Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. He's covered the big events and talked to the biggest names in sports for more than three decades. Breeze, end zone, he hit 500 career touchdown passes. From Super Bowls to the World Series, he's been there, he'll be there, and he's here now for CMI, the Chris Myers interview. It's a pleasure to have Armin Katayan on, who uh, is, is somebody I really admire uh, the kind of work he does and, and the variety over the years of work uh, that he's done in broadcasting, really in media, uh, books as well, which we want to talk about uh, Tiger Woods. More recently, we we saw at the Masters kind of uh, something that all golfers could relate to uh, as great a golfer as he is. So, Armin, it's good to talk to you, by the way. It's nice to catch up. You doing okay? I'm doing great. Yeah, just, uh, you know, Groundhog Day here in Connecticut. So. <laughs> Yeah, we can all relate to that. And yet sports, the games play on. Well, let's talk because you've written so many different types of books. Uh, the Tiger Woods uh, book, and we had Jeff Benedict on talking about the Patriots. He was part of that with you. And, and we didn't get into Tiger too much, but following the Masters, uh, let's just go back for a moment. When you watched this most recent Masters and watched Tiger Woods, having written that book, do uh, you have any special thoughts that it trigger anything with you in, in particular? Well, it triggered, yeah, a couple things. One, obviously at 12, um, where he... He basically, um, that was the beginning of the end for everyone else in 19. And, and um, to go through what he went through, uh, like you said, Chris, I, you know, I felt in many ways, uh, you know, some sort of kinship with him at that point in time. <laughs> it was just so, um, it was just so surreal in so many ways to see him struggle like that. But, you know, he's going to be 45 years old in December. Um, you know, the, the weather wasn't... Uh, all that kind to him in terms of the, uh, how cold it was and things like that and having to play um, more than 18 in one day. Uh, so that wasn't good. But I mean, I, I went back to 19, which um, to me is one of the most remarkable storybook moments that I've ever witnessed in covering sports since God, the, I was 17 years old. So that's what 50 years now. Um, it just was a culmination of, of so much, um, that Jeff and I had sort of seen um, beginning in early 18, when I went out to the farmers, um, we were trying to find an end to the book. And if you remember in, in May of 17 Memorial day weekend, there was that horrific scene on the side of the road in Florida where tiger thought he was in California and all the cocktail of drugs in his system. And, you know, we're at the end of our reporting and the end of our writing. And we're thinking, you know, this is how this book ends. This is the, this is the tragedy that we're going to have to somehow, some way put in perspective. And then when I saw him in, in early 18 and the book was coming out literally two months later, and we were just holding on, trying to get a, uh, some sense. And, and so I went out to the farmers and I was around him for three days and I, and I witnessed a more engaging, a more open, um, a more engaged and a more human uh, Tiger Woods than I had ever seen before in the three years, certainly that I was uh, very actively covering him. And I just thought, oh my gosh, maybe this, there's a, there's, uh, you know, there's hope here. And, um, and then sure enough, you know, he wins the, the tour championship and then obviously goes on and, and just does what I don't think anybody expected him to do at the masters. So, um, you know, it's, it, it, look, everything changes. We all get older. Uh, things don't work as well. I had after that opening round, some feeling that there might be some magic left, but, um, 
you know, when you look at who he's playing against now, uh, it's a little different than when Tiger was really dominating the sport, you know, in the, in the 2000s. So um, I felt good about it, you know, but it was also, you know, it was painful to watch there at times. Yeah. Did you get a, did you get a sense in your time with him uh, that he's accepting where he is now? I don't think there's any question. Uh, I just read something today that um, at his dinner on Tuesday night uh, with all the masters champions, um, he was more emotional and more open about his struggles. I think both Nicholas and player said something um, within the golf writing world about it. And I think, I think the realization to a certain degree has set in. Um, Nobody has been able to elevate his game and, and magnify the moments like Tiger does it at the masters. So, you know, hope against hope, you thought maybe magic would happen again, but um, you know, physically he's just a completely different person. And um, I, I think that's the, um, the overarching um, stop sign for him right now is physically he can't, he can't practice the way he did. He can't work out the way he did. Um, and so he's just not the same golfer. And, but you know what? I mean, God, what did he give us? Uh, 20 yes. years, one of the greatest runs in the history of professional sports. And, um, you know, that was always what Jeff and I were trying to figure out is, you know, the overarching questions that we asked in the book. And I think in the upcoming HBO documentary is, you know, just who is Tiger Woods and, you know, what's the price of genius? And, and, you know, those are the questions I think we answered in the book. And I, I do know from, from seeing the film that, um, you know, they're answered there too, as well. Yeah. The, uh, when is that actually released? Do we have an official for the documentary? Well, it's, but now they've pushed it to HBO Max for January, which as you well know, living in the, in the world you live in, you know, HBO has made an enormous investment in HBO Max. And, and um, I think they want to use this as a linchpin to get people to subscribe. And so I know it's January 2021. I'm not, I haven't been told the exact air dates yet or when it'll drop, but, um, you know, I haven't seen the final, final cut. I saw a very uh, late cut. It's extraordinary. It's one of the best sports docs. Um, I know when talking to my friends at HBO that uh, they said they've ever done, um, you know, it's measured, it's fair, it's, it's intimate, um, it's revealing. And uh, I think it follows in many ways the arc of our book um, in terms of his relationships with his dad and his mother and, and um, you know, women in his life. Uh, and the transactional nature, I think, of Tiger's life for so long. Um, it's, a, it's a collaboration then with what you what the book is, and then putting it on on screen. Is that yes? It's, um, it's Alex Gibney, um, you know, the Oscar winning director who right. obtained the rights to the book when it came out, and um, it's directed by by who we call the two Matts. It's Matt Heineman and Matt Hamachek, deeply experienced in uh, both editing and directing documentary films, and. Um, so it's Alex's Jigsaw Productions and a couple other production companies. Um, it's inspired by our book. Uh, we're executive producers, Jeff and I. So it's, you know, I think it's, I think it's going to be, um, I think it's going to be a really uh, powerful three and a half hours. You know, it's two parts and, um, you know, they've already announced certain people that are in it. Rachel Yucatel is in it, um, who I find to be just an extraordinary figure in the, Yes. And, um, you know, Nick Faldo's in it, Brian Gumbel's in it, uh, Dina Parr, Tiger's first girlfriend. Um, you know, there's a number of prominent golf writers uh, that are in it. But it's, um, 
it covers the waterfront and it's, it's beautifully shot and beautifully edited. And, and so hopefully, you know, it resonates and hopefully, I'm, I'm sure Tiger won't say much about it, but you know, that's, that won't be a surprise. Well, that, yeah, that was, you know, watching, uh, and I can't wait to see this and I, and people are fascinated with Tiger Woods. And that's why not only the book did well was, uh, you know, again, number one, New York times bestseller. Uh, and, and this will, uh, I'm sure people will, will uh, clamor to see this, but after watching, you know, the, the Michael Jordan, you know, the series on ESPN, yeah. where he kind of oh, yeah. had creative control. You know, I, I, I think when people know that it, 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 it makes a little bit of a difference here uh, in this one, it, it tiger has no control over this, right. Other than no what control. He, I mean, yeah. we offered, they offered just like Jeff and I did. I mean, we went back and forth with tigers people when the, we were reporting the book and you know, the answers were no, 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 and no. And uh, they were also they were also coupled by at one point in time, and you'll appreciate this. It, um, you know, when we first reached out, the the conditions were that we had to tell them everybody that we spoke to, both on and off the record, um, they had to have a list of questions, you know, in advance, and um, and you know they would have that kind of control over our reporting. And we just said to them, look, um, you know, 60 minutes doesn't offer these kind of conditions to people. We're not going to do that. And um, so it was the same. um, There were the same attempts made um, by Alex's group, Jigsaw and Matt and Matt. And it was met with basically the same answer, but you know, which was thanks, but no thanks. And frankly, at the end, I don't know, having read, 20 different books about Tiger Woods. I don't know what we would have gotten out of Tiger that would have been any more than I read anywhere else, including a couple that he collaborated on. So in many ways, um, he gave us the, um, the roadmap um, through, I looked at 350 press conferences. I read every single one of those and highlighted them and annotated them. So I knew generally what his thoughts were about just about everything of significance in his life that had been public. Um, and so in the end, I think it was almost better that we could, we could tell the story the way that we wanted to tell it. Uh, the two mats can tell it the way that they feel is fair and, and um, um, you know, reflective of tigers of, of tigers life. And then, you know, we'll leave it at that. We're all big boys and, and um, you know, we can move on from there. Yeah, let the let the people decide after they read yes. the book or watch the documentary. So, three hundred fifty wow press conferences, and then how many books did you read on Tiger? I didn't even know there were that many. Well, it. yeah, there were. It's interesting, you know, when you when our agent first brought up the idea of Tiger Woods, we had, you know, we were sort of still coming off the system, and I was exhausted because I was at sixty Sports and do, still doing pieces for sixty minutes, and I was like, God, do I really want to do a Tiger Woods book? And then Jeff and I, um we spent a whole weekend just looking at what had been done. And it turned out that yes, there had been a number of books and a number of very good books. Tom Callahan had written one. Uh, There were a number of really good golf writers that had written, but they were all in um, reflective of certain periods of Tiger's life. Uh, John Strage wrote one when uh, Tiger had just turned pro. There was another one written um, during the period of time when Tiger was so dominant on the tour. There was another one written post 2010, and uh, 2009, 2010, after the fire hydrant um, and the accident. So there had never been this 360-degree view of Tiger's life uh, in really encompassing from the outside in Earl and Tita's 
um, lives and how they intersected and, um, and got married. And there were incredible stories there. And so when we started to look at it, we thought, huh, this is interesting. And just for an example is like when we wrote the proposal for the system, it was a 60 per page, 60 page proposal detailing how we were going to dig into big time college football. The Tiger Woods proposal was four pages and it basically was, we're going to take this deep dive into, into this iconic athlete's life. And given the fact that, you know, Jeff and I had done a number of books, I think at that point we had done collectively 23 or four nonfiction books. So, um, you know, Simon and Schuster was excited about it. Um, they put the number on the table that we thought was fair for three years worth of work. And, um, and we were off and running. Yeah, three three years. So that's why this is so unique in the final product. What just a, before we move on, Armin, we're talking with Armin uh, Katayan. And what what did you take away in a sentence or two from, from this Tiger Woods book that you didn't know or have any idea? Or what what was maybe the, the greatest revelation for you? Uh, I guess go back to the, you know the price of genius. I don't think Tiger ever really had a chance or a choice. Um, to be any what he was, you know, because of Earl's, uh, for all Earl's bluster and BS about Tiger could have been a fireman, he could have been a postal worker, that just was never in the cards. And um, the combination of Tita, who gave Tiger his killer instinct, and Earl, whose love of the game of golf really imbued Tiger with his great practice habits and his passion for the game and his his incredible... um, vision on the golf course and being able to see shots that no one else sees and shape shots that no one else could shape. Um, you know, I was, I, I, you know, we all get to, you know, you, you and I have been very close to some very big moments in sports and we get to enjoy those moments from the sidelines or from a press box. Um, and other people have witnessed those moments on their television set or up close on a golf course with tiger, but you never really understand the price that the person has to pay professionally and personally to, 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 to be what Tiger Woods is, which could be the greatest individual athlete of all time. So that's what I took away from it. I I took away is like, wow, there's just an enormous price to pay when you're this good. Um, And, and how do you handle that? And I think, you know, Tiger had some, Tiger was a very, very difficult person at times in his life. And as I mentioned before, he was completely transactional in terms of, you know, if he, if you could do something for him, he wanted you by his side. When you, um, when that was over and done with, you were cut loose in ways that, you know, as might as well get your, you know, your neck chopped off. That's how, you know, that's, that's the way it was. He was just that killer instinct and that cold heartedness extended, um, into his, um, professional and personal circle. And, you know, that's, you know, I don't know. I wasn't brought up that way. So, and I think that's, that is, uh, you know, a lot of that is Earl, you know? Yeah, no, I, I think of other, you know, quickly a Todd Marinovich, you know, the former quarterback, maybe it, it sounds weird as, as successful as Tiger's been, but a tortured soul who can maybe be who he really wants to be after, after he's playing finished playing at golf. So we look forward to that HBO documentary. Yeah, I think he's getting closer to that now, Chris, than he's ever been. I think he's, you know, it's, I, I don't want to play amateur psychologist here or psychiatrist, right. But I think he's happier now. He seems happier now. He seems more that there's been a huge burden lifted off his shoulders. And I think that his relationships with his kids and and his girlfriend and um, other golfers now, because, 
you know, that they, they, they know, um, uh, they had such great respect for him and they treat him, I, I think with that respect, but they're also, you know, they're not afraid of him, you know, like a lot of golfers were. So, yeah. um, you know, except maybe on the back nine at the masters on Sunday. <laughs> the athletic, which is a very popular, uh, item to media sports media now to go to, I, and you were wor- recently worked on that. And, and, yeah. and I, I wanted to ask you why the, the video didn't, didn't work yeah. at, at the athletic, the video. Well, I'll, I'll just backtrack a little bit. Um, you know, I was hired in November of 2018 to launch the video with uh, two of my colleagues from the one from CBS News, Alan Goldberg, and another, who you may know, Vic Frank from CBS Sports. Um, yes. And we became you know, the creative team for that launch. And um, so from November through May of 19, um, I was working on on stories. And when we did launch in May, um, before the decision to uh, to end the video operation, which was really in February of, of this year, um, you know, I did 30 stories in basically 15 months. And um, in the end, it was 40 stories overall and some 400 minutes of video. And it's honestly some of the best work I've ever done in my life. Um, really? Wow. wow. Unquestionably. I mean, we were able to put together kind of an all-star team of producers. Uh, I called Jimmy Roberts and, you know, I said, Jimmy, who's the best producer you ever worked with? And he didn't even hesitate. He said, Adrian Gallagher. So we called Adrian and she, she immediately signed on. And I worked with Brian Highland, who I'd worked with at HBO sports and Adam Berger had worked at, at, at CBS sports. And there was this just incredible team that we were able to put together. And we did, I mean, I did a three part series on Alabama and Nick Saban that, had some 700,000 views on, on YouTube. I did a behind the scenes with Tom Izzo. I profiled uh, Colin Coward and, and Chris Russo and Christian Yelich. And, and we did a couple of pieces, Silent No More, which was a three-part deep dive into sexual assault that won the Associated Press Sports Editors um, Video of the Year. And then finally, I did this nine-month investigation into concussion research at the University of North Carolina under the current chancellor, uh, Kevin Guskowitz. So it was, um, it was, I'm, I'm so proud of what we accomplished, but in the end, to answer your question, the athletic was going through in a period of just absolutely exponential growth. And, you know, it was still a startup and it was still, um, the machinery, the internal machinery was still being refined and defined um, they also expanded in August of 2018, um, just as we were getting up and running into the Premier League in in um, in England. So there, they were stretched thin, and I think in the end, we just didn't get because it just wasn't available to us the kind of marketing and promotional and public relations support that you need. Um, in order for the, for the audience to a know that you're doing video. I mean, there were right up almost until the end, I would talk to people and they're like, Oh, the athletics doing video. I didn't know that. Yeah, so, there. you know, yeah. that, and then plus you're behind a paywall. So our, our goal was always, and what um, I spent a lot of time talking to Alex Mather, who was the, one of the co-founders who really was the driving force behind uh, the decision to hire us and, and spend, um, you know, not a little amount of money. I mean, a considerable amount of money are, I mean, you know what network television features cost and our features were 
uh, they were running in you know the tens of thousands of dollars plus um, you know you're paying licensing fees if you do a piece uh, on baseball or the NFL or NHL or MLB and and you know those can run ten thousand dollars for a single story so I think just the combination of the cost and the and the the lack of infrastructure um, you know put us on. Uh, it was it just it, we were just not built to succeed at that point in time. And then, honestly, when the pandemic hit, and the athletic kind of went really, um, just really cut back. I don't think we would. I know we would not have survived the spring because the cost versus, um, uh, you know, um, I just the cost would have just been too much. And yeah. so I I feel like I. I poured a lot of myself into it. Honestly, it's as hard as I've worked in my entire life. And I, I had some very big ideas and uh, hopes for the athletic um, in terms of video. But, you know, Chris, when you look at it in the big picture, who's doing video right now? I mean, ser- serious video, serious storytelling. Fox isn't really doing it. No. Bleach Report's not doing it. SI's not doing it. Um, nobody's really doing it except real sports. And that's, you know, been around for 25 years or more and ESPN, which is, you know, outside the lines, E60, um, sports center presents, and they have the infrastructure and they also have, um, the platforms where they can leverage their costs across, you know, multiple streams and multiple places. We didn't have that with the athletic. We didn't have another outlet for it. So, I don't have a lot of hope for our business beyond what we're now witnessing with, with ESPN and real sports. I think, I think sports journalism like that, that kind of storytelling that you could find on, you know, the NFL on Fox, or you could find on the NFL today on a Sunday, um, you know, it's on a respirator. I mean, it's on life support. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody wants to spend more than a minute or 30 seconds. watching. A, a clip, a highlight, and a lot of it's off the phone. Obviously, television, when you can sit there and watch on a big screen, that's your first choice. But it really has changed the the dynamic, and, and people run with headlines without the kind of research, the kind of stuff you just talked about, and putting the time in in a, in a book for Tiger Woods or in this type of, of endeavor. And I, I, I just would like a little more balance there. I was going to ask you, because you spent so much time in news, you know, with going back to Peter Jennings at ABC and then at and it's CBS. So not only sports, but it is, is news journalism. Is that dying a slow death? Is that on a respirator? Well, no, I don't think it is because there's so much more of it now. I think it depends on what your, you know, what your tastes are. Um, I, I do know, I mean, again, I'm going to sound like, you know, your father, but when I got to network television in 1989, um, I went to world news tonight. Um, I was hired by Rune Arledge um, Peter Jennings was was the anchor. We were the number one nightly news broadcast. We were ten or twelve or or million people a night were watching that single broadcast. Um, there was a roster of writers there from you know from the Dick Shaps of the world to the Jim Wootens of the world to to the Aaron Browns of the world to Ted Koppel to you know Beth Nissen. I can I can name yeah. Dozen of there were 80 correspondents around the world every single night fighting for eight spots on that network broadcast. So if you didn't bring your A game, you weren't getting on the air. So that that now I think those longer stories, and even when I was the chief investigative correspondent for seven years at CBS, 
we were able to do stories that were four and a half or five minutes. Um, last night, Nora O'Donnell in the first part of a four, four part series um, was four minutes and 43 seconds. And I can tell you that's the longest piece the evening news has run. And I don't know how long. Yeah. And so, um, I, you know, it's changing. And I, and I, I couldn't, you know, when I was kind of breaking in, I was 36 or 37 years old and I, the people covering the white house right now, um, I don't know how they're still standing um, over the last three or four years of the kind of reporting that they've done day in and day out on multiple yeah. platforms. So um, I have far more hope um, for news than I do for sports. And, you know, to make one final point, when I was doing pieces for the NFL today, and at one point I was doing 10 or 12 a year for them uh, for the Sunday show, um, there was real estate there. You know, you could get three minutes for a story. Now, so much of what's on those broadcasts are sponsored elements because the cost of the rights fees has, you know, exponentially doubled, tripled, quadrupled, whatever that number is. There's just no time for it anymore because every second, you know, almost has to be accounted for financially. And that's, I don't really know whether our audiences care anymore. I really don't know. Yeah. That, you know, I think that's the question. Yeah, that's why going back to the athletic and why certain things work, it doesn't mean they're not good or, or they're, mm-hmm. they don't serve a purpose. It's just, is there enough of an audience and is it economically feasible uh, to to sustain? I, I, yeah, it's 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 interesting to watch to see where it goes and, and how the phone uh, and, and social well, media. Look at Quibi, Chris. I mean, everybody thought that was going to be the next big thing. Shock that didn't make it. Yeah. 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 And, you know, yes, it launched in a pandemic, but. I still think you go back to what you said is, is, you know, how much do people really want to engage on their phone over a minute? I mean, look at the success of TikTok and that pretty much tells you everything you want to know or Instagram <laughs> and other things. And I just, you know, I'm kind of, I'm kind of glad I'm out of it. You know, I had a 30 uh, year run and I'm, uh, I'm, uh, you know, I'm not in my rocking chair, but I'm, I'm just not. I'm just, this isn't my, this isn't my cup of tea right now. Yeah. You got a lot of game left, but I was just going to pitch, you know, Armin Katan on TikTok. I think yeah. that, you know, if we could keep it like 15 uh, seconds while you're dancing, telling stories, I, I know that might, that might well, fly. Well, five, 15 yeah. seconds. Yeah. It's like you, I know what you're just going to say. What did we, what have we done? What did you do? It's 20 seconds, right? I mean, basically yes. beginning, middle and an end in 20 seconds. And, I mean, I don't know about you, but have you ever had anybody when you're down on the field go, oh, I can do that? And I like to say to them, oh, yeah, come on down here. Yeah, just come on. Stand in front of the camera. Hold the microphone. She's going to say go. Uh, I'm going to put a microphone and an earpiece in your ear. The the producer's going to talk to you a little bit. And uh, tell me a story in 20 seconds. Go ahead. And they're like, oh, no, I I can't do that. I'm like, yeah, I know. It's a lot harder yeah, sideline. Yeah, sideline reporting, and then you and I have a bond on that. I still enjoy doing that, obviously, and I did it for years with CBS and some of the big games and Super Bowls. and And the the, the interviews are one thing, pre and post, but it's the report in the game, right? There's no rush, Armin, and I know you've done a lot more, a lot of different things than, than I have, but there is no rush that in a big game being able to do that and, and pull it off. And, it, and to me, it's the one thing, no matter how you prepare, uh, it, it's uh, you, you, there's a challenge every time because you you can't afford you know. There's no script there. There's no second take. It's live. It's in the midst of something so big and you got to fit it in. You have to. Yeah. And that to me was always, um, you know, it was feast or famine. You know, you, you could be 
Um, you could prepare the same way you always prepare. You could read all the articles. You could do all the reporting. You attend the production meetings and, and then you do like I would always do 10 or 12 like mini stories reports on file cards. So I had them in my hands that I could shuffle through depending upon what would happen in the game. But um, I just, I love those moments when, um, and I worked with, with Greg Gumbel and Phil Sims for six years and, and Dick Enberg and Dan Deardorff for two years. I would love it when that moment when, you know, either Greg or, or Dick would throw it down to the sidelines. You, you do the report knowing um, that you had that 15 to 20 seconds to, to get it in. And then you could almost feel behind you, the team breaking the huddle and then sending it back up to the booth for the play by play to begin. And there was this, you know, synchronicity to it. There was this, um, you know, symbiotic, almost symphonic relationship between play by play analyst and sideline reporter. When it worked, it's seamless. And it's so gratifying because, um, you feel like you're a, you're helping the broadcast and B you're informing your audience, but C it's a, it's a, it's a sense of teamwork between, um, not just yourself and, and your play by play guy and your analyst, but it's your, it's your control room. It's your shooter on the sidelines. It's, it's everything. And that to me was, you know, and you said, I missed the big games. I, I was very fortunate to do two Super Bowls. I did, I think, seven or eight AFC championship games. Um, I did. Did you, seven. Have, did you have Armin, excuse me, that Patriot Raiders snow game? Was that, were you down yeah, on the field? I was on yeah. field at the time. History changing, history changing moment. Yeah. And what was good about that too, that delivery, uh, when it was something that was not so in sync with the game, it really related as to why the quarterback had the glove on or why, you know, in, in the flow of the game, this receiver was was out of the game for a yes. moment, other than just, you know, he, he was injured. Uh, but but I'll tell you, Armin, this is a frustrating part. And not that we're all looking for credit. You do a lot of things behind the scenes. The Just the, the amount of work you put in uh, to be ready, and you probably use, you probably leave 90% of that on, on the floor, right? You probably only use about say 10%. The same thing. 10%. You probably end up yeah. giving, I mean, some games I was on eight times, you know, nine times in a game, if, the, if things went the right way or it was a blowout and we were just trying to hold the audience. But there's other times I, I spent the same amount of preparation and I do a report at the top of the game and I do um, a report at halftime and that was it. And you yeah. just have to accept that. Um, and that's hard, you know, yeah. that's hard because you want to be seen as valuable. Now that doesn't mean I didn't, offer information into the truck to Mark Wolf That's right. producer that was ended up, Phil was ending up using it or it would, it would help dictate coverage. But, you know, our thing always, and I'm sure it was with you and you've been there with, with Aaron is, is like, it's eyes and ears, you know, what are you seeing? What are you hearing? And that to me was always the most interesting thing because um, unlike today where you could move from one side of the field to another, where you're not stationary in a, in almost a moat right now on the sidelines or in the stands, um, that ability to move around the field and to, you know, I would put sometimes five or six miles, you know, walking <laughs> those sidelines, but that's where you saw something. And then you could say, Hey, Mark, um, something's going on down here with the defense or something. And then you just pop something in and get out. Um, and it adds to the broadcast. That was really gratifying, but, um, I would not want to be a sideline reporter right now. And there's some very, very good ones out there. And, you know, you know them between Aaron and Michelle and Tracy and, you know, Evan Washburn and Pam and, and Jamie Erdahl, all these people that are, and that's just a handful of the really good ones. 
Um, but this, this is really hard right now because there's just no yep. access and that's, yep. you don't have access. You're, you're swimming upstream. Yep. And still doing, doing terrific work under the circumstances oh. as, as many, I, I know we could go on and on. I do want to go back to uh, which I was interested in. I, something that I've never really talked about. I know you went to school at San Diego state, but uh, breaking into the business in, in local TV, San Diego TV. And I was thinking, was this, was that the Ron Burgundy era kind of was, was yeah, it kind of was, and, but it's funny. I never, I've never done. And I, I don't mean this to be, um, Oh God, I don't know, condescending or anything. I just never did one single day of local television. I went from, I grew up in San Diego as a reporter going to San Diego state. And then my first job was a, was as the sports editor of a weekly newspaper, a shopper that they would throw on people's doorsteps on Wednesday afternoon. And the only reason I was the, um, sports editor was because I was the only person in the sports department. So I could, call myself the sports editor. And I did that for four <laughs> months. Um, and then I, I got a big break that uh, in a suburban daily in Escondido, California, which was owned by then the Chicago Tribune opened up in the sports department. It was a very um, uh, competitive position because those jobs didn't open up in those days. And this was like 19, oh God, I must've been 78. And um, I got it. And then I was, uh, I went on to work for the San Diego Union, freelance for the Union and for San Diego Magazine. And then, you know, I got my big break in 82 when uh, after a year of badgering Sports Illustrated, I got hired as a reporter uh, at the age of 29 in 1982. You can only imagine what New York City was like. And yeah. for the grand total of uh, $27,000 a year to move my wife, um, who I'm still married to, um, and our, at the time, four month old daughter to New York city in the, in the throes of, uh, the David Dinkins era. So, um, you know, but, but I, you know, seven years there, and then I was fortunate, um, for the summer of 1989, it was the Pete Rose scandal and Rune Arledge was looking for a sports reporter that they could hire and train as a network television correspondent. And, um, you know, it was an arduous audition process. I, I, to this day, I don't know who, I know there were four people. I don't even know who the other three were. And, um, they had some star chamber moment with room and <laughs> getting them in a room, it took them four months to get room in a room. And, um, they showed all our tapes, our audition tapes. And as the story goes, he said, I want that guy. And, uh, you know, I was that guy. So oh, wow. that was a, I can't even, you know, I still get emotional thinking about it. Cause that, yeah, Rune, I that mean, Rune was, like, yeah. yeah, Rune was, uh, Rune was one of those people, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd walk across the desert for Rune Arledge. I would. Yeah. He, yeah. he changed. Yeah. I mean, television, not just sports television, but well, before we wrap and I, I could go on. In fact, I'm going to have you back again because there were a lot of things I wanted to get into, but uh, I, I like what's what I like about this is that we go where the conversation takes us. So we'll wrap with, I have five, five basic questions. We call it five for finding and you fill in the blank. Uh, and here we go uh, with Armin Katayan. Okay. Number one, when I was growing up, I wanted to be like blank. What do you think? Uh, Al Kaline. Uh, okay, line. Oh, wow. Play, yeah, you were Detroit. That's right. I'm going to play Detroit. for the Detroit Tigers. Yeah. All right. Uh, here we go. The best decision I ever made was what? To marry my wife. 
Oh, good. It's still going. How many years of how many years of marriage, by the way? She's looking at me right now. What is it now? <laughs> 40, 41, Dee Dee. Yeah. Oh, that's all right. And what, if, I, this is a separate thought, but what, I always ask people who've been married, that what's the key? Give me your one thought. I was here. Well, I can tell you what my I, wife, it took us about 35 years or maybe even 40 years to get to this point. She said to me one day, she goes, just do what I say when I tell you to do it. And I thought, oh, my God, <laughs> that's, that's the best piece of advice I've ever gotten from her. You know? but I, now, I think it is that um, she was very successful in her own right as a, as a meeting planner and uh, with Marriott and her own company and things. And I, I just think you, um, you have to, I mean, the, the utmost respect for what the other person is and what they do. My wife is one of the, if not the most giving and um, loving people in the world. I don't know who is, but um, yeah, it's hard when those, you know, I was, I was rarely home, Chris, you know? Yeah. So, you're right. That's why I ask. I mean, traveling our business, a lot of good marriages and, and yeah. good relationships suffer because of you. You're just not around. I mean, it's not that you didn't care about no, it. We called it the reentry program. I would come in basically <laughs> two days. You know, maybe, and that was it. Maybe, you know, Sunday night maybe. or Monday, and I would leave again, you know, Wednesday or Thursday to go do a NFL Today or an Inside the NFL piece, and then I would go off and to the weekend. So, you know, I think um, uh, I, I don't want to offer any opinions on it, but I just think the, you know, some I, I just think sometimes people get, um, but you think about the other person before you think about yourself. That's probably the yeah. best. Thing. Okay. And, and maybe, you know, look, I've had some guys in our business say, that's why it works. I wasn't home all the time. Yeah, so well, there's that you. too. Trust me. <laughs> we didn't annoy each other. Okay. Back to, uh, here we go. Third question. You'll have a couple more. Blank is the, uh, is the thing that bothers me the most. Wow. I know that could go in a lot of ways. Well, currently I think hot takes are the things. that bother me. <laughs> Okay. Enough said. That's That covers it. There's a lot of people. And yet that's somehow that's still going. Uh, uh, number four here, blank is when I am the most relaxed. Um, I think when I'm reading is when I'm the most relaxed. Oh, that's good. Because you're, you're also writing. Reader. It's a decompression chamber for me. That's, and I think that's, or just being outside walking. You know, that's okay. probably one of the okay. most relaxed. Well, Anything you're reading now? Um, well, I'm reading about four books at the same time. I'm reading Michael Conley's new book, The Law of Innocence. I'm reading The Power Broker, uh, the Robert Moses book, you know, that's that's just extraordinary. Um, what else? Um, I just, that's I've good. got Matt, one. Matthew McConaughey's book, Green Lights on my. Okay. Yeah, that looks good. Okay. Yeah. So, so. I'm, I'm eclectic. I like to read a lot of different things, but um um, you know, right now I'm, um, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm a big Michael Conley fan. So I'm reading that. Okay. All right. And then finally here, uh, writing a book, if somebody's writing a book about Armin Kitsayan, uh, the title mm-hmm. would be called blank. Uh, relentless. Relentless. Oh, I like that. All right. It, it didn't take you too long to come up with that one. Uh, well, look, for, you should write a book one day about your entire, about you, right? And all that you've covered. I'll look forward it. to that. You know, yeah. I like, I, uh, at some point in time, I'd like, I just feel like right now I'm, I want to finish this one I'm working on. And, and, then, <laughs> yes. uh, and then, and then I just walk away for a while. I don't know if that's possible. <laughs> okay. And, and, and read and relax. Yeah. You are working on one. We'll look forward to when that news can come out an autobiography, uh, which we're fascinated by. And we'll do this again. I, I, I would love to just chat when things uh, come up because I'm pleasure, a fan of, really of, your, good. Uh, of your work and all that you've done. So you take care and thanks for being with us. We appreciate it. You bet. Thank you. All right. Armin can with us on CMI, the Chris Myers interview. 
Thanks for listening to CMI, the Chris Myers interview. Make sure to subscribe, rate, review, and spread the word. Get new episodes every Wednesday on Podcast One, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. 